Hey listeners, it's Jesse. It's been a super hectic week for us over at the retreat, but we didn't want to leave you guys empty-handed. So enjoy this recording of Heresy Grad School with Jason and David. The galaxy is burning. Brother fights brother, and treason splits the Imperium of Man. This is the Horus Heresy. Whether you're a warrior of the Legionis Astartes, an adherent of the Mechanicum, or a brave mortal in a galaxy of madness, you'll find a home here. Welcome to the Remembrancer's Retreat, coming to you from within the depths of the Vengeful Spirit. Yeah. Because I've got notes from all through uh, Part 2, but also a few things from Flight of the Eisenstein. Oh, sweet. Because, like, they leave it really vague in the um, actual black book about what's like they're, you know, they just say like, oh, well, Tarvitz finds out, and then Garrow finds out, and then Tarvitz gets, you know, to the surface to warn people, and Garrow escapes. But really, it's Tarvitz that figures it all out before anybody, and he's trying to escape in a thunderbomb. And I think he's trying to make it, like, to... And I, I don't know if he's trying to make it to the surface or just trying to get away, but it's Garrow on the Eisenstein that sees like a bunch of uh, interceptors like trying to chase down this thunderbomb. Right. And, uh, yeah, right when Eidolon like broadcasts this message fleet wide saying like uh, this thunderhawk has been stolen and there's a traitor aboard, shoot it down immediately. And Garrow uh, fires, waits until the interceptors get really close and fire on them and destroy them, and the radiation cloud they make masks the Thunderhawks, like, descent to the planet. So, kind of looks like, because he sees, like, wait a minute, we thought he shot the Thunderhawk, but really he shot all the interceptors. Oh, that's right, dude. No, you're spot on. So that's the chronology then. Like, And I know people have talked about this before. They're like, so... um, The perceived disconnect from, like, Saul Tarvitz being on Istvan 3 and then in Flight of the Eisenstein, you know, escaping from... What what, what, what ship was he on? Do we know? Like, uh, the Andronius. Oh, the Andronius. Okay, so Tarvitz was on the Andronius. Um, so not the... Not Fulgrim's... Well, because Fulgrim wasn't there, right? So the flagship of the Emperor's Children wasn't there. That would be the flagship of, what, Eidolon? Yeah. That's like his personal ship. Nice. I still remember, I think Fulgrim's is just called the Phoenix, but I'm not positive. Yeah, because Fulgrim doesn't actually show up until like months later when everything's done and Horus is right about to pull out. Okay, yeah, no, you're right. You're right. So that's a solid chronology, man. I think that works. If, if we put Tarvitz on the Andronius right before the like the life eater virus and and sort of the the bombardment of um Istvan 3 but he finds out about it he escapes they try to shoot him down he signals the Eisenstein and Garrow passes the message to Garrow and then he's also able to get down to the surface and then sort of distribute the message there so I was re-listening to Galaxy in Flames, and I was like completely, I don't know why, but I was completely shocked because Lucius is on the surface. 
Yeah, he ends up, um, he's in the kill team that Eidolon sends down, right? No, so Lucius is on the surface as like a loyalist to be purged. Yeah, 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 yeah you're right. Yeah, because he's under, um, like ostensibly, he's part of Saul Tarvitz's company, and so this was always sort of the contention with Lucius, right, is that Lucius sort of felt that he was the better you know, of the two, right? Like, he was the the, the more, uh, I guess, the more tactical, you know, the more masterful in, in the blade work and everything else. So, so he's down there on the surface, and when, like, he starts out, like, just listening to Tarvitz being like, okay, man, I got it. We're going to pass this message. But as time goes by, as the, you know, the Istvan tragedy drags on, man, um he turns, right? And he contacts Eidolon, and he's like, let's make a deal. So he goes full-on, like, double trader turncoat, which is crazy. Because yeah, I remember now that you mention it, uh, he's actually the guy who kills Varda's crawl in the initial landing. Really? Yeah. Uh, because he kills Varda's crawl right about the same time Logan discovers and destroys that big giant, like, shrine. And the uh, crazy, like, choir cacophony deal that's over the city, that, like, breaks and fades away. Alright, good evening, guys. Welcome back to another episode of Heresy Grad School. I got Dave here with me this evening. We're going to be talking the second part of the Istvan Three Atrocity. Now, I thought it'd be good. Last time we started off pretty strong. We had all sorts of stuff happening to these poor, sorry loyalists that got ditched down on Istvan. And we ended uh, talking about one of the key figures of the loyalist resistance, uh, Chrysos Mortar. So... I thought it'd be good to start this part two off with a little bit more on him, considering we just got a uh, small taste with a little fluff snippet at the end. So, Crisis Mortar, this guy. He ends up as a black shield after this. A little bit of a spoiler, he does make it out alive. Which is, uh, the interesting thing, most so, about him starting out... He's not actually Terran like a whole lot of the loyalists that get purged on Istvan. He's not Barbarusian either, uh, like most of the trace. He actually does not specify what planet is from. He just, uh, he's mentioned to be one of the uh, intake, uh, a very rapid intake, right after the Death Guard lose a whole bunch of guys in a uh, ring of xenocides, which, of course, they... Uh, Man, that's a rabbit hole to fall down. <laughs> uh, I think they touch on the Ranga genocides in almost every or every black book. Yeah, and it's it's a uh, it's an exclusive to at least as far as my research shows, it's an exclusive to the Forge World Black Books um, rabbit hole, right? So. I can't find any black library lore about it. I don't think they touch on it in any of the codexes. So it is a very much Alan Bly, we're going to go down the rabbit hole into the Rangdo genocides. Yeah, 
Chrysos himself. Uh, he's an intake to replace some of the losses from this deal. Uh, he actually started out very early on in the Librarius Division of the Death Guard, uh, training right as soon as Mortarian disbands it. Uh, Mortarian's actually one of the most fervent uh, Librarius training, which kind of uh, comes around to bite him in the ass in a couple of ways, and uh, ends up with a little bit of a different take on it by the end of the heresy, but yeah, that's neither here or there. So, uh, Mortarian. Uh, now that he's not in the Librarius anymore, he's kind of at a dead-end position. He ends up getting stuck into the uh, Destroyer cadre, where the, uh, the Death Guard kind of used the Destroyers, uh, you know, rad grenades, radiation weapons, things like that. Uh, their Destroyers are kind of where they send Legionaries, where they're deemed kind of unstable. And it's a dead-end position for him, even though he's technically in a command position, pretty obvious it's not going anywhere and he's there because Mortarian doesn't like him. Uh, these destroyers see some of the hardest fighting out of the engagements of the 14th, which is pretty rough when you can see it and god awful some of the things the 14th had to fight were. But uh, this all actually works out in his favor because when they go to purge him in the first place, he has first-hand experience with different sorts of chemical weapons. And it's probably what helps him along a lot here. Uh, he ends up becoming one of the most lethal loyalist commanders on the ground there. Yeah, ship's eye view there. It was uh, pretty simplified. Didn't get a whole lot of ground, you know, view of the ground except for a few... You know, different placements, deployment maps, things like that. Uh, but here is a lot more uh, part to seeing what's going on, like, on the ground as these loyalists are starting to recover and figure out that the unthinkable has happened, which I think is something that gets glossed over a lot. Uh, to a lot of these legionaries, uh, their brothers, and especially their primarchs, turning on them and turning on what they see as the ideal of the emperor and the Imperium of Man. I mean, you might as well ask one of them to step off the side of a spaceship and fly. Yeah, I think that's something that they definitely like. Jason, you've been listening to Flight of the Eisenstein, and I've been re-listening to Galaxy in Flames. To sort of they stress heavily in the lore of the, you know, especially the Black Library authors, um, just that initial betrayal, the shock and that and you know the the just the treachery of brother turning on brother right like that's such a quintessential moment in i mean all of i mean certainly the heresy but all of the warhammer fiction and lore in general right like that's the moment where you know really the the whole cosmos is 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 set up so everything that follows on follows on from that that moment that turns his turns his gun on his brother Astartes and and I think um yeah it's just it's like it's like almost this like you can't they can't even reconcile that right like they, they can't even understand that it's like against their gene code how could this happen and uh it's it's I mean I think it's very interesting what they've done with with Istvan 3 and how they've turned that into um the setting for the betrayal it's uh, 
you mentioned, you know, to reconcile this betrayal is actually one of the things uh, that Saul Tarvis figures out very early on and pretty clever with how he breaks the news to everyone on the ground, but we'll get into that in a second. Uh, so first off, the thing to note here, course plan just goes to hell really quick. Um, the plot seems to be discovered almost immediately, and this is where a lot of the fiction from Flight of the Eisenstein was really helpful here. They're a little vague on it in the first couple of pages of Ruin. Uh, they mention that Saul Tarvitz and Garrow both are loyalists that aren't on the ground and figure, they figure this plot out and Garrow ends up commandeering the Eisenstein frigate and jumping, uh, jumping ship into the warp to uh, kind of warn the Imperium at large. In the other direction, they mentioned Saul Tarvitz uh, hops off the Emperor's Children battleship to fly a Thunderhawk to the ground. And they're a little ambiguous on the timing here, but Flight of the Eisenstein nails it down really well, so I'm glad I went back over it. Uh, Garrow is actually chilling out. He's sort of on the Astartes version of medical leave after he lost his leg fighting a war singer on Istvan Extremis. Uh, Istvan Extremis is like this tiny little planet that's just barely on the periphery of the Istvan system. And when the Death Guard roll through, uh, when they initially drop into the system, they uh, drop on Istvan Extremis first to wipe it out and kind of blind the rest of the Istvan system. Uh, to what's coming for them. But uh, Garrow loses a leg and is still kind of figuring out how his augmentic works. So he gets stuck on this uh, little Eisenstein frigate along with uh, the second company commander of the Death Guard, a uh, guy by the name of Grolgor. And both of them are stuck on there when all of this goes down. Now, uh, Saul Tarvitz is, seems to be the first one to discover any sort of shady dealings going on because he hops a Thunderhawk uh, from the battleship Andronius and is flying towards the surface when he's just a bunch of interceptors come after him. Now, he actually manages to get a message to get sort of deal as in their same, the same squad, but more like an honor brother. Like, they have fought together, they've done great things, they've saved each other's lives numerous occasions. Yeah, there's there's almost this recognition, I think, between, like, Loken and Tarvitz and Garrow that, you know, they've all crossed paths in sort of their um, previous engagements, their previous compliances, right? So they've all kind of uh, come in contact. I know Loken came in contact with Tarvitz on murder. Um, I, I think uh, Garrow came in contact with them um, on a... It was a mission. They were fighting some, like, bottle people. It was weird. Yeah, yeah what, was, what was that story? Uh, that was the very opening of Flight of the Eisenstein. Okay. Bottle world, kind of like a uh, ring from Halo, but in a bottle. Yeah, that was some. That was that was a wild like setting. Uh, that was a wild description. But yeah, so so I think 
there's this bond that supersedes a bond of, of just, you know, brotherhood of, of Legion of Stardes to Legion of Stardes. There's this sort of unspoken and understood bond between Garrow and Tarvitz and Loken that they're like, I don't know, man. I, I like it's it's almost like they were they were brothers on another level before the tragedy, and so they had this trust in one another that allowed them to sort of deliver the message of this betrayal and then sort of implicitly understand it, that it was going on. Because I think they'd all had their doubts, right? They were like kind of all at that point where they're at the tipping point where they're like some shady shit going on in the legions, man, like the lodges and some of the stuff that we're doing. And, you know, Loken obviously had his doubts after the, uh, the Interax, um, campaign. And so I think they all were, they were all like at that point. And then this was just the point where they were like, all right, like we know what's going on now that we can see it for what it is. And they were able, you know, Tarvitz was really... Gero shoots down the pursuers, uh, the interceptors that are after Tarvitz's Thunderhawk, although kind of masks the uh, engine signature of the Thunderhawk, and it can more or less get to at least the upper atmosphere unmolested. Now, right after that, uh, the Eisenstein actually gets another Thunderhawk in Sons of Horus colors. Man, wow. Dude, you're fucking blowing my mind right now. You're right. You, you know, the, the, the timing of this is, yeah. it's intense. Yeah, so go ahead. Because on that Thunderhawk, you've got four different people. Uh, if, let's see, this would be right out of Vengeful Spirit, the novel, I think. But right at this time, totally Vengeful Spirit is how old now? Like, yeah. I mean, we're, we're past. Yeah. Way past your own fault by this point. <laughs> but, um, so around like since before Horus he's older than dirt he's seen everything and he's actually really good friends with Logan he likes how Logan does things uh, kind of sticks to the old ways he's honorable he's straight and narrow which is uh, interesting too because the uh, kind of pejorative nickname the Death Guard have for uh, Garrow is uh, a Acton Cruz exact same path so he gets a few of the very important remembrancers off the ship, uh, three specifically. You've got Kirill Sinderman, who has been given these like fiery oratories. You've got Mercedes Holiton, who is a really storied, famous remembrancer back on Terra. And then you've got maybe the most who becomes a kind of icon for the Loyalist resistance in a pretty special way a little while down the road. But the very first thing Keeler says to Garrow as soon as she sees him is, you remind me of Logan, you have his eyes. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Speaking to that connection. That's, yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, I can't remember if Logan is Terran or not. Like, I, I know Yachtin Cruz is not. I know Yachtin Cruz is from Chthonia. But I, and I know Garrow is Terran, but I, I can't remember if Loken is from Chthonia or not. That's a good question. We'll have to, we'll have to figure it out. More to follow. <laughs> More to follow. So, uh, this whole deal has not gone 
any way close to what Horace wanted. Uh, it's estimated over 100,000 loyalists on the ground. Maybe less than a third were actually killed in that initial bombardment. Uh, Salt Harvitz does his job pretty well. He gets down there, he starts warning people. He actually starts telling commanders. He knows that it's going to be near impossible for them to understand, hey, Horus is virus bombing the planet, we got to get out of here. Uh, up in the air or in orbit, uh, you've actually got not just loyalist marines that miss the purge, but um, you've actually got a lot of humans. Besides those remembrancers on the vengeful spirit, you've got hundreds of just like auxiliaries, support staff, iterators, a ton of iterators, functionaries just being killed. But even then, a lot of them are starting to outwit Astartes and lean into the like bowels of the inner ship. And I mean, they could be stuck up in there for years without ever being turned out. Um, and there are a couple of interesting little dramas going on in space. So one of those going on is a little loyalist vessel called the Ducroy. Uh, it's not really big, but uh, definitely not one of those eight capital ships we were talking about. But what it does do, it turns its guns on a lot of the trader vessels that are surrounding it. And even though it's quickly destroyed, it attempts to interdict that bombardment of those eight big capital ships getting into position. And uh, it destroys several of their smaller escort craft and does significant damage to one of those capital ships, the Killing Star. And it actually almost pulls it out of the bombardment entirely and uh, probably saves a lot of lives on the ground. Uh, another good one, uh, one that's a little more interesting, especially to me, you've got this vessel called the Xerxes 977, and this will definitely come back up later in uh, part three. Uh, this is a Mechanicum vessel from the Ordo Reductor Gallius. And the Ordo Reductor here, they're used to attaching you know, different divisions along with expeditionary fleets and just having them gone for decades at a time attached to these things. And this is kind of that same deal. Uh, the Xerxes 977 was just very recently attached to this expeditionary fleet with Horus. They have no idea what's going on. They are not in the loop for Horus's plan at all. So when all of this shit starts hitting their respective fans, um, the Xerxes 977 has no idea what's going down. And of course, they're still programmed to be loyal to the Emperor. So it is a great cost that the traitor ships around them have to bring that sucker down. And this is maybe one of the biggest issues Horus has, maybe his biggest mistake in this whole deal, this whole uh, laundry list of fuck handings, is he doesn't destroy this thing now. What happens is they put a lot of effort into downing the Xerxes 977, and they don't destroy it entirely. They damage it, and it falls from orbit into the atmosphere of Istvan Three. And uh, remember that, because it'll come back up later. Following along the same thought pattern, uh, you've got one other uh, fun little story. There's a heavy cruiser called the Sunstone. Uh, it's actually just a bunch of humans uh, ruled, uh, 
Uh, it's crewed by the bodyguard of this guy called Mordecai. Uh, he's a duke who's been assigned to this fleet. And this kind of starts the downhill slide for the Third Legion. Actually, I almost feel a little bit sorry for them by the end of Isbon, because they're just, they're such sad sacks, like, the entire time. Uh, this instance, specifically, a Third Legion boarding party set out to assassinate Duke Mordecai when he, you know, refuses to see to Horus's demands and bombard the planet. And what should have been a short boarding action where they go in and wipe out the bridge, it's turned into this deck-to-deck -deck battle, uh, fighting all through the bowels of the ship until Mordecai just overloads it and annihilates them all. I, I think, I mean, I love this, right? This is like my favorite part of the Black Books, man. It's just, is these little vignettes, right? These little side stories that... You know, they never get fully developed, but they provide so much background for a narrative like campaign or a narrative scenario that you, you know, you might want to run. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it speaks to the hubris of the Astartes, right? The Astartes are always, over, you know, underestimating the mortals, right? They're always like, they, they think they're just going to roll over these, these, you know, human beings who, you know, don't have post-human, um, you know, physiology and, and, you know, everything else. And I, I, I fucking love stories like this. And I know you do too, Jason, because you, you know, we both play mortals, right? So it's, um, it, these little stories where the mortals can, uh, get the upper hand and, and, uh, even if they go out with a bang, man, it's, they're, they're taking, some uh, some third legion Astartes with him. I, I love this is my favorite part of the black books. Two, how great of a zone mortalis game would that make? Like <sighs> two solar auxilium versus some first children. Yeah, like one hundred percent want to do that. <laughs> so, uh, right about this time. Uh, got the Eisenstein, manages to break from the fleet and make emergency warp translation, and that's pretty much where we leave them. Uh, the traders have no idea what it's up at the Eisenstein. Uh, tiny spoiler, they uh, manage to make it back to Imperial-ish space and hook up with Dorn. Uh, back on the surface, like I was saying, around 100,000 Astartes. They've taken less than one-tenth casualties from that initial assault, and less than a third had actually been killed by that initial virus bombardment, uh, thanks to all the warnings and whatnot from the loyalists in orbit. And you've got the Death Guard, they're sealed off in a bunch of bunker complexes from these trench works that they've just finished overrunning like an hour before. Uh, you've got a bunch of Emperor's children holed up in the Presenter's Palace, and you've got a ton of Sons of Horus uh, holed up in catacombs down in the south in that Siren Hole Temple Complex. So, a real small aside here of something I thought one of the coolest things in the book. On page 49, you have a little tiny boxed off deal called A Note on Veracity. And uh, I know last time, Dave, you were asking uh, exactly who are these little fluff snippets of Mortar, who is he giving his testimony to? So not only do they actually mention here uh, that this entire account that we've been going through, it's derived from fragments of Loyalist survivor testimonies to the Council of Terra, 
uh, strategy logs of the heavy frigate Eisenstein, uh, some stuff from captured enemy vessels, and the interrogation logs from captured traitors later. So, that's neat, but it's not the part I thought was really cool. What I think's really cool is they go into detail and they say, uh, this is very, very small part of the whole truth. Uh, it's exemplary rather than exhaustive are the words they use. And there are many unsung and unremembered heroes that will never have a full-scale remembrance. Um, we will never really know the full scale of the atrocity that took place. And I think that's neat because what it sounds like Forge World is doing is from just book one, they're saying, hey, this is kind of what's going on there. Your own badass sorts. Like, there's so much room for, you know, your own things that you want to come in and play with and, like, make games, make narrative campaigns. Yeah, a hundred, like, a hundred percent. So, so, what, you know, the way I read that is, like, you, you know, Nathaniel Garrow and the Flight of the Eisenstein is symbolic of probably a hundred, if not a thousand, like, similar attempts to escape um, the Istvan tragedy to get off-world to bring the, you know, the, the news of, of, of the betrayal to the, uh, you know, to the Imperium, um, which, of course, we know is true, right? Because we kind of covered a little bit of that in, uh, in Tooth and Claw, like our very first kind of pilot heresy grad school, right? That was, that was very much a, a sort of a similar story, even though uh, Autech Moore showed up late to the Istvan tragedy, he still was there um, and had to kind of fight his way out and follow the traitors back. But but yeah, I mean, like, absolutely. You know, the flight of the Eisenstein was was symbolic. It was in- exemplary. But there there are probably a thousand other backstories that you could create and forge your own narrative to um, bring word of this this betrayal back to the uh, back to the the light of the Imperium. Yeah, I mean, like we were saying. Uh, with the Sunstone, each one of these like little dramas played out, each little self-contained battle would be its own awesome like battle to play on the table, or hell, even like a miniature like multi-game campaign. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's so much setting and and richness and lore here. Um, yeah, it makes me wish I could do it like full time, dude. <laughs> Uh, if only we could figure out how to get paid for it. <laughs> All right. Well, heading on here into the next little subsection called survival. So, uh, right about now, the uh, trader Primarchs up in orbit are starting to figure out that this did not go quite to plan. Uh, guys on the ground are pissed off because they're figuring out like the full scale of the treachery that's been done to them. And that their own Primarchs have turned on them and considered them, you know, essentially traitors to their own legions, uh, loyal to the Emperor above them, which may or may not be true, but it's not great to hear either way. And right, what I think is pretty interesting is Angron, it takes pretty definitive action here. And what I mean by that, Angron, like Steve said last episode, he is never what you would call patient. 
uh, he's tired of this waiting around, and he doesn't think Horus is going to do a great job. So it's already unraveling for Angron. He's like, you know what? I'm going down there. I'm taking care of this shit myself. And before Horus can get a second bombardment going, uh, Angron jumps in a gunship. Uh, he brings along 50 whole companies and heads down to the surface. And there are a couple of reasons I think he does this, because it's explicitly against the orders uh, Horus gives it. Apparently at this time, Horus is just going to try bombarding the planet again, maybe root a few more of them out, but Angron stops him from doing that. Uh, but I think he does it. One of the biggest reasons is Angron has never... He's the only Primarch, I feel, that doesn't have a choice in where he ended up. But putting that aside, Horus is not Angron's secondary master. Like, he didn't jump ship from the Emperor, uh, who was a complete asshole to Angron from day one, and just to hang out with Horus. I mean, in Betrayer, he even says, I'm not with Horus, I'm against the Emperor. And I think that's a good point here. Because I think Angron's trying to prove that Horus isn't his master. He's not just jumping one for another. But two, I think he doesn't like the whole idea of betrayal in the first place. Uh, Angron thinks he betrayed his family back on New Syria when the Emperor yanked him into the flagship uh, and left all of his buddies to die on New Syria. And I think at this point he kind of wants to honor his sons, like, even though he understands, like, hey, they're loyalists, they're never going to come along with us, they've got ties to the Emperor that are too hard to break. I think he kind of wants to honor them by dying in his own hands instead of, like, with an impersonal, you know, bomb from outer space. Yeah, so, yeah I, wouldn't, I wouldn't 100% agree with you on that. Like, I think Angron wants to give the loyalist word bearers, um, sorry, world eaters on the surface, the opportunity to die world eaters death, which is like chain sword, chain axe, close combat in your face, right? Like the, like he is not about even, you know, to let even the loyalist world eaters, um, die to some like fucking orbital strike, uh, you know, exterminatus event. So, yeah. And what's interesting here, too, they mentioned that the world leaders on the ground actually haven't figured out what's been going on yet, uh, where some of the other forces like the Death Guard, the Sun's Force, are coming out of their bunkers and complexes and figuring out exactly what happened with the bombardment. The world leaders, it's about 2,000 of them on the ground, don't actually figure out what's going on until they come out of their catacombs and their garrison bunkers in those plazas near the presenter's palace, and they see Angron disembarking with 50 full companies of world leaders from orbit and charging into them. And uh, because Saul to this last ditch, so they had Angron shows up. It's really well written. Uh, part here that shows a lot of really satisfying literary symmetry. Angron's entire deal why he hates the Emperor in the first place is 
because one, he didn't get to take over his home planet. He's the only Primarch that didn't conquer the planet he landed on. But it was because the Emperor yanked him from the battlefield of like his last stand, all of his adopted family from the gladiators he fought with, uh, yanked him from that battlefield into his flagship and just left them there to die. And of course, the betrayer years, decades later, when he comes back, uh, he figures out the entire planet thinks that he fled, that uh, Angron's a coward. But uh, it's a really nice poetic symmetry to how uh, the loyalist world leaders kind of die that death with their brothers, like against impossible odds that Angron wanted to die in the first place, but it was denied to him. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I agree, man. I think, um, I think you're right. Angron is is shucking off sort of the uh, the yoke that Horus is trying to play on place on him. Um, you know, second in command, uh, or you know, it's just like a, you know, a weapon to be wielded by Horus and the Warmaster. I think he's sort of saying, I'm not going to play that game, and and I think he's offering his uh, his legioner legionaries, you know. The, the death that he wanted. Um, I still think Angron's pretty fucking, you know, fucked up, simple dude, but in his own way, he's honorable. Yeah. So, oh, another really good point they bring up here that I wanted to touch on. Uh, this is more or less the first open-scale Astartes on Astartes war where death is the intention. Like, there are no pulled punches anymore. They are trying to murder each other. And it's a huge upset from how the Astartes are used to waging war. Uh, they're used to waging war against mortals, essentially. Um, of course, plenty of alien races, but ones that still function on the same uh, sort of military ideas that the Astartes shock and awe. Uh, their tactics of like breaking enemy morale uh, with overwhelming force, uh, things like the transhuman dread caused in you know smaller things that aren't Astartes that see like something that big moving so fast. Um, it really doesn't apply anymore. Like none of the things the Astartes have used to sweep enemies before them, like the length and breadth of the Great Crusade, work here. Uh, even bolters and chainsaws. They're not great weapons against armored opponents. Uh, in Betrayer, uh, Aaron Dimsky Bowden points out how with a chainsword, you really have to target the joints and the armor, uh, the soft, like, flex metal uh, partitions in between the big armor plates because it will just scrape along and do little to no damage. Uh, same thing with a bolt gun. It annoys me a little bit when you hear about it in the uh, some of the Black Library books of, like, know, oh, the Space Marines shot the uh, Trader Space Marines straight through the breastplate. It's like, dude, the, a bolter, yes, it has a penetrating tip on it, but it's a penetrating tip uh, that is designed to be used against, like, proto-tyranids. Uh, it's not designed to be used against hard-armored targets like other Space Marines. Uh, they're essentially tiny penetrating fragmentation grenades. Like, against an unarmored human, it will just, you know, like, blow the entire torso off some poor asshole and turn him <laughs> into a red mist. But, you know, against another Astartes, 
the breastplate is like the most heavily armored, you know, part, just like a uh, medieval core. I, I, you know, I think it's it's not just it's not just the weaponry, it's not just the physiology, right? It's not just it's not the tech, it's it's the tactics, right? It's the it's it's the first time that the 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 Legion of Stardes have had to go up against a you know a, a foe that is essentially themselves, right? Like so, yeah. like the 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 playing field is is completely even they're going to adapt to their tactics they're going to they're going to develop counter tactics um and it's you know it's it's a type of warfare that neither one of them were prepared to fight you know cuz really this was the first time that you know e- even the the trader space marines and and you you could debate this a little bit in terms of i think there may have been some small purges going on but there certainly wasn't anything of this scale going on um, until Istvan three, and so this was this was the first time where Space Marines had to adapt tactics uh, and fight Space Marines. Uh, pretty pretty awesome. Yeah, it's a new thing for everybody. But uh, oh, this is another uh, good little piece of fiction, and this one's just a short story called Lord of the Red Sands, uh, and it's real real short story i think it's like five or six pages but i really love it it's one of my favorites uh it actually tells the point of view from one of the loyalists on the ground uh, a a loyalist world leader named cargar and this is after uh the loyalist resistance from the world leaders led by uh, captain erlen uh he's of course killed like dismembered by dozens of other world leaders like telling them to you know, fuck off the entire way home. But <clears throat> Karugar is pretty great because after Angron like murders his way through all of the two thousand loyalist world leaders, come back around, he's actually stopping to talk. You know, that aren't a hundred percent dead yet. Karugar, and the only words Karugar really has for Angron is like, "Hey, you see that little, uh, see that cut on your neck." That was me, asshole. And then he dies. <laughs> it's pretty spectacular. It's one of my favorite e-shorts. But, um, Angron, and this is what I mean when I say he maybe actually saved the lives of more loyalists than he ended up killing here because it really screws Horace's uh, bombardment plan here and puts him in a really bad position. Uh, they say Horace actually briefly considers going in for a second bombardment anyway. But uh, he works out the scenarios there, and he doesn't want to risk it. Uh, best case scenario, he bombards everything, kills Angron, and a bunch of world leader ships are now going to turn on him in orbit, which he could probably overwhelm him, but it's a huge cost to like resources that he does not want to dedicate. Uh, worst case, he fuck hands it a second time, and now Angron is alive and like double pissed. So <laughs> that... That doesn't go well for anything. Uh, So, uh, out of all of these bad options, the best thing Horace comes up with is he's like, all right, Angron is already down there. The world leaders have now already, like, dispersed into, like, this uncontrollable, untrackable horde that's just going where they end up and start up all over the world. Down there, up. 
ounce of salt, and a porous borders that second. So, in this second drop, uh, the Emperor's children are the first to redeploy. Uh, probably because they're trying to, you know, kind of make up for Tarvin's. Uh, Tarvin's is pretty much their entire deal. Two thirds of the loyalists on the ground survive. Uh, so Eidlon's probably trying to make amends for that so he doesn't end up on Horus's bad side for too long. But uh, they end up landing in a big open market uh, complex south of the Presenter's Palace. And to kind of make a example of the Presenter's Palace, instead they end up landing there instead of on top of the Presenter's Palace itself, like their original assault force did in that uh, first drop. Uh, world leaders, they start landing some support forces in there. Uh, the Death Guard and the Sons of Horus, they start gunship runs across the northwest and the south, uh, respectively, which are going to be uh, in the northwest, those bunker complexes that were just taken over, and the uh, Sons of Horus are down there in the Siren Hole. Uh, the Emperor's children, and they've got Eidlon at their head now, uh, they show up at the Presenter's Palace expecting to find like a really ramshackle defense, which uh, is completely the wrong idea. They're heavily engaged from the moment they set foot on the grounds of the Presenter's Palace, and their very first attempt to uh, assault the palace and take it, it, they don't even make it to the palace walls themselves before they're forced to retreat. And uh, even when they try to go in underneath through like ruins into the catacombs beneath the uh, palace there, they're still pushed back uh, time and time again without gains. And what's kind of entertaining is the loyalists inside the presenter's palace start taking a lot of the arms, armor, destroyed vehicles and stuff that they've uh, knocked off of that traitor column and start repurposing it. Uh, down in the Siren Hold, these gunship sweeps are really ineffective uh, because the it's essentially like a hellscape of like busted down ruins, everything's on fire, there are ash storms all over the place. It makes gunships really ineffective, but also the ruins allow for really, really easy like guerrilla attacks from some of the loyalist forces camped out there. Uh, and two, one of the things you mentioned earlier uh, in Space Marine on Space Marine Combat, everybody knows everybody else's weakness. It's not like they're showing up for a new alien species that doesn't know how Space Marines operate. Uh, everyone knows what's going on. And, uh, oh, two here is another really good one of those miniature dramas. There's actually a Sons of Horus Storm Eagle that gets commandeered by loyalists and uh, flown back to a Sons of Horus ship called the Minotaur. Uh, it's a little strike cruiser. And uh, it ends up uh, docking, and they proclaim this is vengeance for the blood of Terra before uh, ramming a line of gunships that are rearming, uh, unleashing all of their weapons and killing an entire company of Sons of Horus in the uh, loading gantry there before being destroyed. Uh, so between all of this, I mean, things are not going great for the traitors at this point. Uh, the death toll is actually starting to swing in favor of the loyalists. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think one of the 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 lines that is echoed throughout 
you know, galaxy in flames, and and uh, Tarvitz, you know, says to uh, um, Tormageddon and uh, and Vipus is, you know, we're gonna make them pay for what they did here. You know, we and so I think there's sort of this acknowledgement on the part of the loyalists that like they're probably not making it off Istvan three, right? Like this is probably where they're gonna make their last stand, but like they're gonna they're gonna bring down as many of the traitors as they can. And, uh, and I think that's, I mean, that's what just makes it such an epic, um, last stand, right? It's like, um, it's, it's, it's amazing. So, I, I mean, the defense that Tarvitz mounts in the, uh, the preceptor's palace and the way he's able to keep, you know, manipulating, um, you know, his stratagems and the defenses there. And then all this other, uh, like the, the little mini dramas were, you know, handfuls of, of space marines are stealing fucking Thunderhawks and flying them back into the space holds of uh, orbital ships. They're just, it's, uh, I mean, it's just, it's pure mayhem, man. And it's it's just, uh, I think the Black Library book paints a great picture of how chaotic that, you know, that battle and that war, uh, that landscape really is. Speaking of landscapes, uh, time and time again, they mention how this bombardment, not only did it not kill all the loyalists they were trying to kill, but it's turned the terrain massively in favor of the loyalists because they've managed to bunker up in the presenter's palace. They have managed to dig into these ruins and set up all sorts of ambushes. And it's causing a huge problem now, too, because uh, debris from the bombardment is starting to descend. And these huge, like, continent-wide storms we were talking about really renew with new vigor. Uh, you have, like, hurricane-force winds. They're, like, driving torrents of, like, ash and cinder through the streets. And they're, like, giant lightning storms that are screwing with communications. Um so they even mentioned that essentially the initial bombardment just slaughtered the native population and uh, turned the surface into uh, you know a massively or a massive advantage for the defender. So the emperor's children they're not doing great. They're still crammed up against the presenter's palace. Uh, all the aircraft runs that the sons of Horus and the Death Guard have been sending out they've more or less done nothing but suffer casualties and reveal, like, how dug in and pissed off the loyalists are. Um, you've got loyalists that are turning around and occupying defenses that they've more or less just assaulted in clear hours ago. And, uh, oh, two, a big point, uh, Legio Mortis is essentially blinded by these storms. Uh, they can't use any of their long-range weapons because they can't target them accurately. And advancing into a ruined city like this with no reliable scanning or support is a pretty terrible idea for a Titan, unless you want to get like boarded and have you know your underbits chain sorted out. Yeah, yeah. So did 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 they talk about the Titans at all in Flight of the Eisenstein? Because I don't think they did. Right? They did. Um, oh, that's right. They did. In the very first assault, uh, you're following a Death Guard captain called Timeter, 
and he's actually really suspicious and unsettled because uh, actually one of the uh, biggest names in Titans is on Gaston III. The uh, Emperor class uh, dies, I heard, what is it, Dies Irae, uh, is one of the biggest, most storied you know, Titans from Legio Mortis, who is around well into the 41st millennium. But uh, Timeter actually sees the Titans stop, retreat, and start sealing off uh, all of its external hatches. Like, he specifically notices uh, plasma vents and uh, heating cores in, like, the legs that normally would be venting waste heat from uh, the reactor have been, like, all the baffles have been shut and everything is on lockdown and the Titans aren't doing their job of supporting them anymore. And that's kind of one of, like, these initial premonitions to what's going to happen right before that first bombardment. So, I mean, that's, like, that's so cool, man. Like, the the, the, the interplay between Galaxy and Flames and um, Flight of the Eisenstein and then this, the the Black Book, Book One, Betrayal, um, you really need to read them all together uh, because... The the Dies Irae in Galaxy and Flames. There's a there's a little drama that plays out in the inside of the Dies Irae that I don't want to spoil it if you guys haven't read it. Um, but it's it's um it's just very cool to be able to sort of watch what's happening from the outside, know what's going on inside, and then kind of know how it all plays out. Even though we know how it ends, right? Because we I mean, we know how it ends and. I, you know, I get this all the time from people who I don't think get the heresy. They're like, well, you, I mean, you guys know how it ends, right? And it's like, yeah, but that's, that's not why we're into it. We're not into it because we know how it ends and we know who wins. Like, we're into it because the, like, the, the personalities and the stories and the dramas that play out during the heresy, I think... They're more they're more grim dark than anything you can imagine in you know the forty first millennia. Like this is where it all started. This is what happened. This is like it's just for me. This is this is like this is the this is the lore, man. Literally making history. All right. So down in the southern city. That a huge column of Vindicators, Predators, Land Raiders, and whatnot uh, from the Death Guard we were talking about last time. Uh, those, just like the Titans, have pretty much ground to a halt. Uh, you've got infantry counterattacking them constantly. You've got hidden weapons teams set up. Uh, it's a terrible idea to advance tanks without infantry support through an urban environment for just such a reason. Uh, then, down in the Siren Hole is where Garvio Logan has set up shop. Uh, this is actually kind of interesting because this is, uh, Garvio Logan's big deal. He is very adamantly not a son of Horus anymore. All of the sons of Horus in his command actually deface their legion symbols and they retake the name of the Lunar Wolves. And Garviel's actually the one who starts coordinating all of these resistances across the east and south sectors of the city. 
and it's a really big benefit for the loyalists there because this is where the traitor sons of Horus are attempting to kind of pile them in and encircle them. Sons of Horus, you know, are really big on those surrounding uh, encirclement tactics. And Logan knows exactly how to outwit those to keep his defense mobile, to make all sorts of hit-and-run attacks to kind of prevent the traitors from you know, utilizing those encirclement tactics that will box them in and wipe them out. Uh, over towards the presenter's palace, Eidolon, this, this poor dumb asshole has been here this entire time. Uh, he's still essentially just throwing himself against the presenter's palace. It's not going great. He hasn't made any headway at all. Uh, Tarvitz is still tossing him a firm middle finger from the upper deck. Uh, the palace has been reinforced. Like They've got heavy weapons hauled out now. They've repaired vehicles from Eidolon's uh, first failed attacks have turned against him. Uh, another uh, good point is Rylanor. Yeah. I know he comes up in the Ridge the Tridge of uh, books here. He's hanging out with these Loyalist Emperor's children, and they cannot put this guy down. Uh, time and time again, it looks like he's been destroyed or has you know, gotten taken out, and he'll like burst from a huge pile of rubble, only to like, start kicking ass again. And the Emperor's children are just completely frustrated, too. Uh, there are roving packs of world leaders just kind of hanging around. It's like nobody knows if they're loyalists, maybe they're, you know, traitor, and they just are taking this opportunity to inflict themselves on the Emperor's children. But uh, they're kind of being a pain in the ass. They'll, like, dart out of the ruins in these little packs and, like, jump on a couple of squads of Emperor's children to plunder arms and munitions and then just disappearing off them. So, Jason, let me ask you something, because you, sure. like, you, you're, you're as deep into the lore as I am. Like, do, do you think this is the loyalist Emperor's children's finest moment? I think maybe so. I mind with Eidlon is just having a a shit, it's not even a shit day, it's like a shit month for Eidolon. And Saul Tarvitz, from a vastly inferior position with less guys, less resources, having absolutely no advantages compared to Eidolon, has just given him a firm finger the entire time. So, yes, I would, I would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, the Emperor's Children, for me, they're just a hard, they're a hard legion to like, because it just seems like from the very beginning, as soon as they get linked up with Fulgrim, it's like, just like one really bad decision after another, right? And I, I feel, I kind of feel for the legion, you know, as, as sort of, you know, like, I, I, I kind of have the heart of a loyalist anyway, man, so... For me, it's like, it's like, how do you guys just go along with this, right? It's just like, it's not even shenaniganry. It's just like, just blatant, like, debauchery. And uh, I think, um, I think the defense of Istvan III, Saul Tarvitz, and the Loyalist Emperor's Children's, and, and, and Rylanar, um, I mean, I think that's, that's got to be their finest moment um, 
as a as a pure legion, right? As a legion that stands for perfection, as a legion that stands for being able to like adapt to any circumstance in the face of adversity and overcome it. Um, I think you know that is definitely what came through for me in the Black Book and then in in Galaxy uh, in Flames as well. That's a pretty good point. I mean, there are not a whole lot, much like the world leaders, not a whole lot of loyalist emperors' children kicking around late in the heresy. So this is probably like their one, you know, big stand-up to you know defy Eidolon and prove them fulgrim. So yeah, that's a pretty good point. Yeah, that's yeah. You're right. You know, now that I think about it, it's like did like there's no like emperors' children. Uh, knight errant, right? Like, 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 Malkador wasn't gonna be like, oh, oh, you're em- you were emperor's children, like, uh, like, uh, yeah, no, man, like he was just gonna like squash you with his psychic power, right? He was like gonna psychic squash you, and yeah, just <laughs> like the, they were, they were such a um, compromised legion from the very beginning that. I think if you like, if you're the kind of guy that wants to play a loyalist emperor, emperor's children army, you're going to be hard pressed to play them past Istvan three. You know, like maybe they were out there and maybe they were doing great things. Maybe they, I mean, you know, like small war band, but like, I don't think so. I think the loyalist version or the loyalist part partition of the third legion died on Istvan three, and like that was it, man. That would be interesting to uh, we're gonna have to track that down and see if we can find any notable loyalist emperor's children after Istvan three. I can't think of any. Anyway, sidetrack. Sorry, back to. Ah, it happens. That's why. <laughs> Alright, so, let's talk about a place where it's not going quite so hot for the loyalists. Up in that uh, northwest bunker complex, the Death Guard here are pretty much in the worst situation out of any of the loyalists. Uh, They're dug into these bunker complexes and trench works that they've just taken over, and they're essentially caught between Angron and Mortarion. Uh, Mortarion is, you know, before these storms rolled in, he hopped down there to the planet... Uh, just like Angron and Eidolon did. And he set up off to the east, and Angron's off in the west, and these poor bastard Death Guard loyalists are caught in between them. Uh, Angron's world leaders, they're attacking them like underneath the bunkers through tunnel networks, and just coming out of the darkness like heedless of casualties. Uh, Mortarian kind of shows out he's a little smarter than Eidolon here. Instead of just throwing tons and tons of Death Guard at these bunker complexes, uh, he comes down with a whole wing of gunships and his personal line. It's called a Relic Assault Gunship uh, named the Omen. It just flattens trenches, bunkers, and everything so there's no hiding places for the loyalists above the ground. And it starts disembarking an, another armored column uh, made up of Spartans, Spellblades, and Pythons to root them out of here. And uh, what I thought was kind of interesting uh, from 
Flight of the Eisenstein begin that initial uh, phase where we're following Captain Timeter. The Death Guard, when they first come came down, they could have, just like the Emperor's children, landed on top of or behind their target, but instead they come down directly in the fire zone of all these bunkers. And Timeter makes a point of it when one of his uh, younger Marines asks us, uh, probably for our benefit, the narrative, uh, why they didn't do that. And he tells the uh, initiate, we don't flow around them like water. We're Death Guard. We go straight through them. Anything else shows we might have considered them a threat. Which, I'm not a huge Death Guard fan, but uh, I, I, I like that. That was, that was pretty badass. And uh, that's essentially what Mortarian is doing here. He's not bandying around. He's going straight through the Loyalists. And to that point, uh, kind of like a little more of an overall look here as we kind of come to the end of part two. Uh, this is the one part, I think, that went pretty well for Horus here, as intended. Uh, is he's kind of blooding his four original big bad legions. Uh, he's making sure all of them are deployed against their own, and he's getting uh, he's getting them used to fighting space marines and getting them used to fighting uh, their own brothers. Uh, it's I think it's really kind of showing off uh, Horus's kind of wider scope. Like he has the heresy planned out. He's not just going into this, you know, at a whim. And it's really the first time, again, that Astartes have experience fighting another, you know, another Astartes. Yeah, and no. They, I mean, they definitely make a point about that, right, is is that the Horus's, after Angron goes down and sort of, you know, complicates Horus's original strategy, which is, you know, purge the legion quickly get out of istvan go to five you know compromise the rest of the wider you know legions and then get to terra so horus already knows that like his timeline is off but like um he kind of uses that again to his advantage by uh blooding the legion right blooding the traitors he's gonna make every legionary who's you know considered um you know part of his 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 treachery right so part of his betrayal part of his i guess crusade to go you know dethrone the emperor he's gonna make them like swear that blood oath um you know by you know in blood right by killing by killing their brothers by killing their fellow marines um and and the and I the lore makes a really big point of that, so I think it's um it's definitely important. Yeah, because uh, it mentions there's essentially no way out for these uh, traitors now. They've killed their former comrades, and there's never going to be forgiveness from the emperor. Uh, so the only way they have to go now is much like the loyalists they've cornered here. Uh, it's victory or death, man. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's 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 intense. Um, it's uh, you know, it's sort of it, it's it's visceral because I think it um, 
like a lot of a lot of allegory it, it sort of like touches on the human condition man and and you know i think in a lot of wars and a, a lot of like places in the world you know where there are kind of like these long-term wars it's 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 all about your your past right and you can't you can't you can't outrun your past it's who you are so you know you are now like forevermore you're you're a traitor to the imperium you're a traitor to the emperor you're a traitor to your your brother astartes and so um that you know maybe that's the bigger treachery that that horus you know weaves on istvan 3 maybe it's not the purging of you know a third of the legion maybe it's the actual turning of the two-thirds of the legion to uh you know the 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 dark path of of chaos man you know maybe that's maybe that's the bigger treachery there interestingly in a flight of the eisenstein the uh kind of mirrored uh situation kind of happens between garrow and his uh apothecary boyan uh when garrow first makes the command to jump ship and enter the warp against, you know, and not take plate or not take part in that bombardment, he's explicitly going against Horace's orders and his apothecary makes the point that if we're the only ones not doing this, then we're the traitors. Yeah. The traitors to the war master and if we do this and we're wrong, there is no forgiveness for us. Yeah, this is an all-in kind of stakes, right? This is like this is you don't you don't you don't get to to you know ask for forgiveness or you know you, you don't get to 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 reconcile this down the road. This is this is all in and uh yeah, it's 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 interesting. I think you see that kind of conflict played out. It's not black and white. And that's what I love about the lore and what I love about the writers, you know, even, you know, even Forge World, I think, gets this right uh, more than Black Libraries, is that internal conflict, right? So even when, you know, Little Horse Aximand goes to kill Tormageddon, um, like, you know, it it is, uh, it's it takes a toll on him, right? It's like, that is, that that's a point of no return. And you kind of start to see the the consequences of betrayal i think on a like you know a spiritual level not to get like you know too you know weird and like spiritual and philosophical but i i do think that that's what uh, a lot of the authors are are trying to portray is that these uh you know these these actions have consequences and we're we're seeing them play out and it's this is, I mean, and this is, again, this is, like, why I fucking love the heresy, because it sets the stage for everything that comes after. Like, everything that we read about in the 41st millennia, you know, all these, like, if you were just to dive into Warhammer 40k, you would think, oh, these. this is a completely cartoonish, you know, this is a completely ridiculous uh, setting, and but once you dial that back and once you go through the lore and you get back to the heresy, like it connects all the dots and you're like, oh, I, like I get it now. Like I can see where Karn came from. I can see where, you know, Ezekiel Abaddon came from. 
And it all comes back to Istvan 3, right? Like, they were all there. It's fucking awesome, man. It's awesome what these guys did. All right. Well, that, I think that more or less wraps up part two, unless you've got uh, anything else you're dying to talk about. No, I mean, I think we kind of we kind of wandered a little bit uh, all over the place. That's probably my fault. But um, but no, part two was uh, part two was pretty epic. And if you guys wanted to uh, go further down the rabbit hole on part two, I think Flight of the Eisenstein, Galaxy in Flames, um, and there's some short stories that jason mentioned and that we will put in the footnotes of the um or the show notes of the podcast yeah uh, lord of the red sands is my favorite even though it's only five six pages long i think awesome so uh like last time uh get you excited about part three of the Islam three atrocity where we for the entrance of my favorite character of Istvan, one of my only favorite loyalists, truth be told. So, uh, talking a little while here, I've got kind of that pack-a-day smoker's rasp starting to go on. So hopefully I can give a little crisis mortar justice here. <laughs> so, with that set for part three, here's the testimony of crisis mortar fought free of the trench works before we'd been cut off, and it had been a running battle all the way. Legion outriders, speeder sweep squadrons, they were relentless. But so were we, both Death Guard, whatever blood was between us now. We'd reached the edge of the industrial zone, East Sector, by nightfall. Nothing of that left but twisted ironwork and broken buildings. Most of it was still burning. Not long after that, we ran into about 50 of our brothers coming the other way. They must have braved the storm and gunships to get ahead of us. They'd probably meant an ambush, but we just blundered into each other in the ash storm. It had been killing at close quarters then, and I got separated from my men. I'd taken hits as well. My blood supply was getting low. I nearly fell into the crater in the ash fog. Ten meters wide, it swallowed up the roadway I was on half-filled with space marine dead, Angron's butchers, all of them. It was some sort of trap, I had no doubt, but I didn't have time to question how or why. Searchlights were flaring up behind me, and I could hear the rumble of rhino tracks drawing in. I dropped into the crater, and I hoped to hide amongst the dead, at least get a shot or two off before they took me. It was only then I saw the dead world leaders had been scavenged. They'd been ripped open and stripped, not just their weapons, but power units circuitry. I had no time to consider it. The rhino had almost made the crest of the crater. There were a dozen silhouettes around it. Death Guard. Kolik's company got their markings. True sons of Arborous all. I was about to open fire when I saw the others coming out of the storm. I thought they were Terminators at first. Some pattern I didn't recognize. World Eaters, maybe. Come to avenge their dead. But they were too large, and I knew I was seeing something else. Something I didn't know. The crater lit up was like an exploding star. Black lightning leapt from Death Guard to Death Guard, tearing them open. I was right. The crater had been a trap, just not one laid by any Legionis Astartes, loyal or traitor. 
Awesome. All right. That's the end of that business. All right, guys. Thanks, and uh, stay tuned for part three. Sure.